This is Fundraising Radio, and today as a guest speaker, we have Craig Kaplan, Venture Partner at NextGen Venture Partners. And this episode, we're going to focus on making your first sales, shortening your sales cycle, etc. So, Craig, let's kick off by here giving us some background on yourself and on Next Generation Venture Partners. It's great to talk to you and to talk to your your listeners. Um, yes, my uh, my role at NextGen Ventures uh, is a venture partner, and NextGen Ventures has a fantastic model where they've used the power of uh, net to build the largest venture partner network uh, in the country, uh, perhaps in the world, and it started with a team of of put together this network over the last six seven years of over eleven hundred venture partners. So I'm one of the 1,100 out there, uh, 1,100 strong. And the model works really well for obviously sourcing um, early stage startups, which, which is the target for the next gen funds, but also just having a fantastic network of, uh, and so it's been a, a lot of fun for me personally as a, um, uh, a startup aficionado, a startup operator, uh, as well as an angel investor, to be involved in this this network of like-minded individuals, and we can put in uh, as much as we want as a venture partner uh, in terms of our involvement. I tend to be pretty actively involved in in, in sourcing um, companies looking for funding and being involved in investment committees, and hopefully helping out uh, with portfolio companies when they need. My type of guidance. So that's the Next Gen Venture Group, and I, I highly recommend you uh, folks take a look. Uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want more information. Perfect. I will definitely leave links to Next Gen and to your LinkedIn in the description of this episode. And first things first, let's talk a little bit about Next Gen. How does this work? Is this like an angel syndicate, like uh, angel group? How does this process work? Yeah, um, NextGen is great. They are, uh, they just raised their second fund of 50 million. The first fund was 20 million. Uh, and so the venture partner uh, group is uh, invited in for others. Uh, any venture partner has the ability to, to join in on any investments, which is basically modeled into a syndicate. Uh, and then uh, venture partners who have sourced the opportunity, they get a, a um, you know, a percentage um, if, um, you know, if the deal closes. Um, and so it's a great opportunity for founders um, to um, get uh, not only investment from the fund, but an investment from a group of, of um, interested uh, venture partners who want to put some of their own dollars behind the investment. Right. So it's like uh, first thing, first thing that founder does, he or she presents to the fund that's next gen raised, right? That's fifty million dollar fund, and then this deal goes on to angel investors who are part of next gen. Is that right? Exactly, and that's uh, treated just like a syndicate. So it's an add-on uh, mm -hmm. amount of investment. So typically, next gen fund is writing one to two million dollar checks to early stage 
companies companies that are typically between 10 and 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 18 million in terms of valuation uh and then um you know it depends on how much interest there is from the venture partners but there's there tends to be several hundred thousand dollars of investment from the venture partners themselves and alongside that that one to two million dollar check that uh, next gen writes that's really interesting so let's talk a little bit about how to approach this sort of huge syndicate uh, is it just through that website where you apply and that's it? Or should you try to reach to the manager of this fund or to partners like yourself? Does it make sense to, to, to do this extra work to reach out to other people? Yeah, I think, I mean, the nice thing is, is that with, with 1,100 venture partners, there's probably a good chance that, uh, uh, that somebody is one or two degrees on LinkedIn from a venture right. partner uh, so it, you can you know obviously check your network and see if you have a connection there uh, um, I, I, as a, a founder who's fundraising um, you know I always preach to you know I um, partner if you if you um, can get through to them, obviously, um, given the amount of the size of their network, I think venture the next gen ventures gets a, a huge amount of, of of inbound. So it's best to go through a venture partner um, to get uh, kind of a first conversation going to get a venture partner excited about it, and and then um, that will be helpful to get uh, get attention on it from the next gen venture team. Um, so. Um, you know, I think it's it's just like any sales process. You want multiple ways to to go about getting in. I think, secondly, you know, one of the the, the real benefits of our our venture partner network is that there's true subject matter experts across all different fields. And so, if you are you know pitching a fintech startup versus a health tech startup versus a SaaS, you know, find the venture partners that are um, you know, uh, in the network that are in your field, because they're going to best understand your pitch and best be able to sort of um, translate that over to the, you know, to the, the managing partner team. Um, I think that's a good sort of inside ball tip for, you know, for, for getting your pitch. And I think that's generally a good tip for any founder is, Certainly. you know, once you're looking to, when you're fundraising, you know, look for advisors, obviously within your space, who have the types of connections into venture capital teams that are that respect their opinion. And so the it, the process of fundraising, from my point of view, is also uh, both advisors and investors. And so you really want folks who know your space and know your technology as your early investors, and as well as tapping into their network of, of like-minded individuals and the same approach for if you're you know, approaching next gen in, in my my point of view right i think that's great advice and here we actually would like to talk a little bit about investors perspective as of joining the angel syndicate or anything like that so uh, most of my listeners of course are founders but some of them are actually angel investors so let's talk just a few minutes about that i wanted to ask you what's the major benefit of join this sort of large syndicate like Tech Coast Angels or Next Gen Venture Partners versus being a solo angel investor? 
take, you know, for different reasons. Um, you know, I, I love working with entrepreneurs and working with startup teams. It makes me feel like I, I've got uh, a pulse on what might be going on out there and, and make me feel young still at the age of 47. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it makes, you know, it, it gives me the illusion, I think, of, of feeling like I, I'm staying up to date on some of what's going on in the world and especially in the technology world that goes so fast, you know. And so for me, um, getting the ideas and the energy and and the, through those conversations is great. So what I ended up doing when I when I left a, um, a long-term operational role at Edgecast Networks that got acquired by Verizon is I wanted to be more involved in different industries. And, and, uh, and so I did that through mentoring. Unfortunately, I have sort of the experience level that some of the local organizations really um, wanted me as a mentor and I and so I got involved there and then through that process I, that allowed me to get um, kind of more educated and understand of different startups and so like that leads led me into doing some angel investing and really my initial angel investing was really through kind of friends or, or through my network um, I think you kind of go through phases on these sorts of things um as an angel investor kind of initial investor for me was like oh these are friends i really love their ideas um and i was firmly in the camp of like invest with just good people the ideas you know are great to invest in as well but ultimately early stage angel investment i think you're you're investing in a person and their ability to execute on their idea and pivot and do all those hard things early stage goes. So that sort of was my philosophy. Um, sort of as I as I got more experienced in evaluating deals and especially through the next gen group, which gave me that experience of being a lot more investment committees and hearing perspective, different perspectives, which I think was really valuable. I decided like, well, it's actually um, I think more my interest to to make a lot more angel investments uh, with smaller checks and uh, and be more diversified. And so that's the approach I started to take, um, you know, two years into in sort of my angel investing. And and that's just a philosophy and a strategy. And I sort of highly recommend that you, you have a, a philosophy and a strategy, uh, although I have to admit I didn't necessarily have that, you know, going in. Right. Uh, and so syndicates obviously is a great way of doing that. The next gen um, approach allows you to kind of pick and choose and put smaller investments in because of their, their syndicate approach. Um, I'm also involved in the um, Jason Calcana syndicate. Um, and I, I asked to be invited into that because I was listening to his, um, uh, you know, his podcast, the twist this week in startups. And I love uh -huh. his, style of kind of a journalistic approach of evaluating deals. Uh, and so I'm a participant in his syndicate. Now, of course, the drawback of a syndicate is that there's higher fees and carry costs. And so that's, uh, you know, you kind of, uh, it's like investing into a mutual fund or an index fund, you know, like you're right. working for low fees. But um, so the trade-off is Jason Galcanis is really well known, has a great process. And so his fees might be uh, a higher than a typical syndicate, but I also trust his process and his team uh, very much in, in their approach. Um, so different different approaches there. Uh, I think the syndicate approach is great because you can kind of 
test out and, and, you know, evaluate different deals to, to jump into. Um, I also jumped into an investment for a syndicate on the East coast, give a different perspective, Silicon Valley, um, you know, valuations are, are much higher than the rest of the country. Oh, yeah. And I think that's the reason why yeah, that's no, that's one obvious uh, problem out there, but uh, good for the startups there, you know, uh, challenging for investing, but that's one of the reasons why next gen is great because their managing partners are um, in Boston, um, in DC, uh, in LA. Uh, also they, one of the founders came from Austin to LA. So there's a good community in Austin of their network. And then they have a, a, a managing partner in San Francisco. So they really cover a lot of different regions and gives them perspective on valuations in a good way. So uh, I think that's one thing to kind of look out for is you're going to get better valuations outside of Silicon Valley. Obviously there's a lot of pros to being in Silicon Valley too, as a, uh, as a startup. So you got to weigh the, uh, you know, the pros and cons there. Right. I think being spread out throughout the country is just a great, great idea. I've seen many investors spreading out not only through the country, but through the world, basically having uh, headquarters in different countries, like four or five different countries, which I think is a great idea as well. Uh, but here I would like to shift a little bit towards of your background. Uh, I remember that you have experience in growing sales rapidly from zero to $1 million in sales. So let's talk a little bit about that. That's, I think, one of the major pain points of any startup founder. Uh, it's making those first 100, 1,000 sales. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how do you do them? How do you start? How do you reach out to your customers? Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, great question. So just to give a little bit of background, um, there was two organizations that I was involved in where um, we went from zero to one million. Uh, one of them was Edgecast Networks, which I, I mentioned, and, and that was a fantastic team. And I came in as um, running the the, uh, the inside sales group there with the COO. Uh, and we eventually went to 100 million revenue before the acquisition. Um, and then before that, I was involved at a company called Everbridge out of Glendale, worked with the co-founder there. Uh, it was already established, had a few million dollars of revenue, and then we built a new product with the, uh, the same backend technology. And so we took the uh, co-founder, myself, and one other salesperson, and we basically built a new product using their backend technology and went to a new market and went from zero to 1.5 million in ARR in 18 months. A little bit different since you had the technology spun up, but um, similar sales concepts in terms of how to get there. The distinction between the two is that in, in the, uh, the latter group and, and the company, by the way, was called Everbridge, which eventually IPO'd uh, in 2016, I believe. Um, the Everbridge process, the organization we built within it was called InstaStaff, and we took a technology that was being sold to state and local government and education and started selling it to the staffing industry. So a different product, a different go-to-market strategy. And really that approach was let's just um, you know list out every single staffing agency Lily from Google, and this was around 2006, 
that we started doing this. So it was early sort of in, in the technology wave when it comes to staffing technology. And, uh, and we just cold called <laughs> hundreds of, nice. of companies. Uh, but we also had to refine, you know, obviously the pitch. We wanted to, it was a SaaS product. So we wanted to get uh, essentially the, the office managers and the owners of these staffing agencies onto a demo as quick as possible. So we really refined the demo process. This is all sort of like basics today, right? With the SaaS sale, you know, like mm -hmm. we were kind of, you know, we were, we were dealing with like how to get WebEx set up for people who never used WebEx before. That's that's how early this was. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the concept was, is like, you know, if you're creating a market, which is what we were doing then, you gotta go out there and just really put your focus on targeting. Like who's the people I need to talk to? And then it's just grunt work, you know, get out there and, you know, eight hours a day, we had three people making phone calls and then we would just try to streamline the sales process. So we were literally like asking for the business and a credit card, like while on, you know, after a 10, 15 minute demo and, uh, and going from there. And so we had to make every conversation opportunistic. So that's, that's a, a, awesome. a great example of an outbound process. And, um, you know, we had uh, the ability to to make the, the UI of the product as streamlined as we, we needed to, which was really critical. And obviously, as an early stage startup, you're going to have that kind of control. And that's important to make sure you're removing any sort of obstacles that get uh, your users and, and your buyers to be able to sign up. Um, Edgecast was a different approach. It was an established industry, so we didn't have to create the market. It was in the content delivery network. Um, so we were, um, you know, going into a market and defining a better product, a better pricing uh, strategy, better set of features, better service. So we went into, um, the, uh, the industry and, and we could use certain keywords, right, to attract the right mm -hmm. customers to us. And so we took a, a, a solid set of inbound transactional leads. And what we needed to do, though, was increase the, um, you know, the, uh, the contract value. So we were getting a bunch of transactional leads that were probably worth at first in the first year. They were deals that were, you know, roughly you know, five, six, $7,000 a year SaaS deals. And what we wanted to do was, was to get those deals up to $30,000. You know, we wanted to increase the deal size by four or five X. So we took a sales, uh, in, uh, inbound sales team and made them a hybrid inbound outbound sales team during the process. And so we used the inbound transactional deals to kind of get them up and running and training and using, we used a lot of website chat to do sales because we were selling to, uh, B2B to DevOps teams who um, mm -hmm. didn't want to have a, a, a slick sales process. They just wanted to have a lot of information quickly and then be able to get into a, a POC, a, uh, you know, a proof of concept. And that's how we, we streamlined that. But at the same time, we would get salespeople to then uh, create targets, outbound targets, define who they should be going after. And we, we really manage the team towards the right inbound versus outbound sales. We, we commissioned them differently. We gave like higher praise to outbound deals. You know, a, everything we did was really focused around inbound deals are great, but you really need to, in order to make quota, you need you know, 
50% of your deals outbound by the end of uh, you know the first 100, 180 days. Right. And, and then by the end of your first year with us, you should be doing all of your deals outbound because you see the value of getting, you know, having 10 deals closed for 30,000 each versus having 100 deals closed for, you know, $5,000 each. Right, that makes sense. So um, uh, you've mentioned that you were doing cold calling on your first project. Can we talk a little bit about that? How effective is it now? in 2020 when everything is basically digitalized? Do you think it makes <laughs> sense to try? Yeah, so cold calling is fascinating. So I think it depends on who the market is you're targeting. Um, now with a startup, most startups are not targeting enterprise sales and because that's a very long sales cycle or if they mm -hmm. are, they're, they're balancing between enterprise and mid-market and, and kind of S&P sales, you know, small, medium business sales when it comes to B2B. Um, I think cold calling is incredibly important. And the reason it's incredibly important right now is because I like to look at sort of the counter trends in industries. So we at Edgecast, we were uh, one of the earliest teams using LinkedIn to do selling. And I know we were one of the earliest teams and it's not just me uh, saying that is because I was working with the, the LinkedIn sales navigator product team, you know, when they were first launching sales navigator and LinkedIn. Nice. So, um, so I know we were, we were avant-garde there. And our, you know, what we were fans of doing is is rewarding sales on accomplishments versus activity. So that team kind of naturally found LinkedIn to be a, a great means to reach out to these these technical buyers who are you know who who didn't pick up the phone or check voicemails and you know you know DevOps people aren't getting a lot of phone calls right, right. and if they are getting a phone calls it's from a salesperson that they don't want to talk to <laughs> but LinkedIn you know was an early uh, you know network for technology people obviously and so it was an amazing way to just do very directed messages and get people and it still is so it's it's just probably a little bit more overrun now with salespeople trying to get in touch with, with with folks there. So now is a good time to look at it. Well, LinkedIn is sort of brass tacks for being, you know, reaching out to folks and I still encourage it to be heavily used that way. <clears throat> but you want to have, cold calls are critical now because what it does is it allows folks to know that you're like, hey, you're, you're, you're getting in touch and you're getting in touch for a good reason and you're getting into it for a good reason because uh, you know you're just like a customer that i've helped before and you want to have a combination of leaving voicemails and 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 then not leaving voicemails but every voicemail or call should be accompanied by an email and vice versa so mm -hmm. i think it's the combination that's really really useful and it's where sales teams sort of drop the ball there is that they just you know, they get discouraged because, you know, you get, you know, 1% or less, I mean, you know, really better than that of people picking up the phone. But because it's not common, you know, to call people anymore, it's <laughs> exactly the reason why to do it as a salesperson. For the same reason when, um, you know, when, when email became really popular and everybody's emailing sales uh, prospects, you know, writing a handwritten note is a great way, you know, to get somebody's attention <laughs> and, and using oh, yeah. snail mail. So you just got to think about it as, as doing what's not common because 
the way that you you build a fantastic sales process and sales team is that you don't go with the flow. You don't go with what all the other salespeople are doing. You do something different. And you know, leaving voicemails is and and, and making cold calls is is a different way. Now, let me put an asterisk on that. That my experience with salespeople who are fantastic at getting folks on the phone and doing cold calls is that they have a great sense of humor. And you know, not a lot of pe- salespeople. <laughs> I oh, shouldn't yeah. say that. Not, <laughs> the majority of salespeople aren't folks who are, you know, are cracking jokes and have a great sense of humor. <laughs> they are very, you know, competitive and they're very intent and they're very persuasive. And those are all great qualities. For cold calling, what I look for in sort of an an SDR around that is just somebody who can crack jokes and they're trying to sauce, I think, to getting <laughs> good cold callers. Other types of salespeople, like leaving kind of intense messages, you know, or the same message all the time, um, just not as, as effective. And me personally, like, I'm not a good joke teller and I, you know, I, I have a good sense of humor, but I'm not uh, someone who can pluck off a joke, you know, from from memory very well, or at least I'll deliver it poorly. So like I'm, I'm, I'm a great <laughs> example of not not being the best type of cold call personality out there. And thank God I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, I was just about to say like I guess that's why I'm a poor salesman. <laughs> my, my sense of humor is, is pretty pretty sad to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not critical. I think it's just critical for that sort of cold call person now. I, I, one of the best gold callers that I've ever hired, um, his sense of humor is non-existent. So, so there's, <laughs> and, and for him, nice. it was just a matter of like, he is so um, methodical, right, in his processes. And, and so like, he makes sure that the messages he's leaving and the stories telling are really well scripted. And so, uh, you know, he just gets down to business. And so like the other, you know, there's always this sort of exception, which is, you know what, he's just motivated about like accomplishing certain goals. He's motivated about getting the 50 cold calls done that day. And he's just methodical about it. And so there are other salespeople who, if you put the numbers together and you have the right story and the right script, then your personality doesn't matter. And so I think that's how, you know, it's kind of an easier way to build a team like that because it's hard to find you know, the salespeople who are just like, you know, are, are going to both be able to be methodical and have a great, you know, oh, yeah. kind of sense of humor. So you go one or the other. And if you find one with both, then you, you, you found the holy grail. But at the same time, you find one with both skills, they're going to be, you know, an account executive, you know, and be moving out of the prospecting role very quickly because, you know, that's that's the trick with sales is that the, the full on SDR rule, you know, is really a jumping um jumping off point to get into more advanced sales. And so nobody wants to stay in an SDR for too long um, if they've got that skill set to move on. So now one of the things I would add um, for founders is that, you know, your process of fundraising and, and perfecting your pitch is the same exact process for perfecting your pitch to customers. So if your investors that you're pitching to are, are, are poking holes in your product or poking holes in your business strategy or go-to-market strategy, that's great. 
that's just the same you know experience you're going to have with 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 customers that you're selling to mm -hmm. and so you know learn from that process fundraising to build a better go-to-market strategy meaning a better sales strategy and a better you know uh, value proposition for your product because that's a learning um curve for for all the objections you're going to get selling the product now at the same time of course that you're fundraising you're also selling to customers right or typically you are and hopefully you have some of your customers come on board and they become investors on that early stage and so like it's really all tied together in sort of a fundraising strategy to bring on board you know investors advisors and your early customers it's really the same process just fine-tuned a little bit differently for who the person is you're, you're pitching to but you should really be thinking about that early sales process is is the same it's a sales process to get investors it's a sales process to get customers and it's a sales process to get advisors what you get out of those three different categories is a little bit different but it's really sort of the same process to get people, you know, excited about your yes. product, excited about your industry, excited about the problems that you're going to solve <laughs> and then showing them how you're going to solve it. Right. I think that's really valuable advice. And I think it's really, it really makes sense to mix those two and that each one can help the other one. So fundraising can help sales and sales can help fundraising. And we're going to wrap it up here. So, Craig, thanks a lot for sharing it, for sharing your experience as an investor and as a salesman. I think both were great to hear and have a great week. Stay safe. Thanks, Constantine. Again, appreciate the time and, and all the questions. And, and, uh, and I look forward to uh, hearing from your listeners reaching out afterwards. Take care. Absolutely.